Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship gathering at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Please sit back and enjoy our teaching time now with lead pastor, John Buckley. As we really kicked around, what we wanted to focus on as we thought about selfless service, there's a lot of good passages. But what better example, we thought, than to take the very passage where Jesus talks about what true serving of others is all about in his death on the cross. And so what I wanted to do today was to take so that we get the full expanse of what this passage was talking about, and hopefully through that you'll be able to understand better and be able to grasp better what this is all about as you look at this new year and how you can try to apply it. Because really it comes down to this, selfishness versus selflessness. And if we're really honest, most of us have the natural tendency, that fleshly tendency, to be selfish. We like things our way. And we live in a culture that caters to our selfishness. We want our food prepared to the way that we have our city set up to oftentimes even getting companies that want to try to work within whatever we want our jobs to look like. Now, the interesting thing about all this leading up to it is, is the disciples were traveling with Jesus in the verses prior to verse 35. He was once again sharing with them, and this was the third time that he had done this where he shared about his death on the cross. In fact, what you'll read, if you read a few verses up from there, this was the most graphic that he'd been with them, the most detailed. We talked about being mocked and brought to Jerusalem three times. The other two were in chapter 8, verse 31, and chapter 9, and verse 31. So this is the third time that they're hearing about Jesus going to Jerusalem so that he could be punished or died for our sins. And yet, as soon as he gets done saying that, you see the response that happens from the disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, and I've read it quite a few times in studying for it, every time I came to that, I thought, guys, I mean, come on, how hard is it to, to hear what Jesus is saying? Why didn't you get it? Because their mindset had been trained for so long in the religious environment that they lived that it was about Jesus coming, and they still felt coming to conquer the Roman rule and to be able to give them a victorious military victory over their captors so that they could be free and then set up an Israel the way that God intended it to in the prior um, years when they had the temple that was large in Solomon's time and, and they were able to, to be that, that beacon around the world of how God, Jehovah, was the God, the powerful God, the mighty God, the just God. And they couldn't get that into their heads. They weren't grasping that. And I always try to remind myself before I get too critical to, remind, to remember that I'm kind of on the other end of things. <laughs> you know, how many times if we were caught up in something? I, I was going through, uh, I love history, and I was going through this magazine. It was talking, it had this ad in there about a luxury liner cruise. And it talked about how grand pianos, and I think it was five different dining halls, and chandeliers, and, and, and white tablecloths, and black-suited waiters, and, and uh, ballroom dancing, and all these different things. And it had the prices on there. And, uh, you know, come and see the, the greatest arche, or arche, or, or, that's not archaeological, architectural feat of all maritime history. And it was all talking about the Titanic. Now, you and I 
think of the Titanic, we go, whoa, bad. But in their day, the Titanic was, wow, big, cool, awesome, luxurious. This is what you want to do. And if you had the money to do it, man, people were doing everything they could to get on this packed ship, sold out completely in three days. The seats, or excuse me, the, the spots, the, the, the bunks on the Titanic. So our perspective now, looking back on that, is, well, duh. But looking into that, and I think it's the same, how we can be so easily critical of the disciples when we kind of have this hindsight situation. Because think of James and John, by the way. We're not talking Peter. Poor Peter, he certainly gets it. He brings a lot of it on well. But Peter always seemed to get himself in trouble. But James and John weren't that way. And what we really see when we look at this story is that's shown here is the fact that although they knew Jesus, they knew about Jesus, they still didn't know Jesus. They knew about Jesus, but they didn't really know Jesus. And my prayer for our body is that we won't just know about Jesus. And then we won't even just know him as our Savior, although that is my strong desire for each and every person here, but that we would know Jesus in an ongoing, growing deeper relationship with him. So the first thing we see today is that the heart of man is revealed. In verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and say to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Very presumptuous, by the way. Now, but think of it, James and John weren't these guys that should, you know, like, wow, they were the sons of Zebedee, we see that. But what else do we know about them? They were also nicknamed by Jesus, the, th the sons of thunder. James was a fisherman, and overall, when you look at James in the New Testament, he was a pretty mild-mannered guy when it came to the disciples. He didn't create a whole lot of ripples, so to speak, in, in his serving of Jesus. And John... John even more so. I mean, John was the one that when Jesus was going to be on the cross later, he called him his beloved disciple, and he said to John, this woman, which was his mom, I want you to take her and take care of her. This is the guy now that's standing in front of him going, hey, we're going to ask you a question. Whatever we ask you, you want, we want you to tell us yes. Every parent here knows that if your child ever says this, the first answer to that is No. Hey, mom and dad, I'm going to ask you a question. No matter what it is, I'm going to, I want you to say yes. Right. Every parent's radar goes up. Something sneaky is going on here. Your kids don't end that and go, hey, and I want to empty out my whole piggy bank and give it to missions. That's not usually the way that story goes. It's usually doing something a tad bit on the risky side and sometimes just all-out foolishness. So we see James and John here. Not guys that you would put on your 10 most wanted list in a criminal aspect, which reveals again to us how easy it is, it is for us to get into this selfish mindset. And, and Jesus just gets done sharing about him going to Jerusalem to die, and they go, oh, hey, hey, Jesus, we got a question to ask you. And you see that heart of man that's revealed there. And then it continues on there in verse number 36. And he says, um, just one second, lost my place there. In verse 36, it says this, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? I love that Jesus didn't just blast them. What, tell me, what do you want? Verse 37, and he said to him, grant us to sit one at the right hand and one at your left in your glory. 
Now, for a moment there, when you see the phrase, in your glory, you get the thought that maybe he's talking about heaven, but he, they were talking about in your glorious reign. And the seat on the right and the left hand were known as the prestigious spots of, of authority and of dignity and of prestige. They were the spots you wanted to sit at. If you really had something of a relationship with the king or the ruler, you wanted to be up as close to him as you possibly could get. And this heart is revealed in there that shows that what they wanted to do was to be able to follow their desires and have this spot of what they thought was authority. And what the request shows is what we all have to be aware of, and that's the wickedness of our own hearts and the flesh that we oftentimes let rule our passions. We're naturally selfish, I said. We desire our own way most of the time. And all of us have that thought of our heart in different ways when we talk about our own way. With some of us, it's that tight grasp on money. With others of us, it's a tight grasp on our schedule. With others of us, it's this desire that we might have some sort of prestige or be looked upon as being something special or powerful or mighty or respected. And when our heart's revealed is a lot of times the desires that we have. The disciples just happen to vocalize it. Hey, Jesus, we got this question. Whatever we ask, and here's the, here's the one. We want to be in the right and the left hand. And what I'd encourage all of us to consider is what is really going on in your heart? What are the things that you really, really want, and are they really in line with what God wants for you? Because oftentimes, you're going to find that God asks you to do things that force you to get out of your comfort zone. And I know we all like our comfort zones. I mean, who here doesn't like a nice, comfy bed or a nice, soft couch? I remember we went look for couches years ago, and my wife was like, what exactly are you looking for? Something I can sleep on. I like couches. You can, you know, fall asleep while you're a football game or nestle in there while you're reading a book. Comfortable. And we like our comfort. And we even think we deserve to be comfortable which, by the way, is not taught in the scriptures. And we've got to be, if we're going to be selfless, we've got to really be willing to say to God, God, I am willing to be out of my comfort zone, and I'm willing to be able to do what you've called me to do, knowing this, and this is what stops us. We oftentimes don't want to get out of our comfort zone because of our selfishness of what we want, but also the fear that comes along with that. See, part of James and John's situation was they wanted to be close to Jesus because they didn't know what this whole kingdom was going to look like, and they wanted to be as close to him as they could get. And fear oftentimes will motivate things in our lives and reveals, again, a lot of times the wrong direction of our heart and, not show, and really shows what we're trusting in. But the second thing we see here is the reality of, of life was revealed. The reality of life was revealed in verse 38 and 40, 38 to 40. <clears throat> and the Bible says this. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. The cup that I drink, you'll drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those with whom it has been prepared. See, and so you see that re reality of their life is revealed, of life is revealed. And I love the way that Jesus responds. 
He doesn't tear into them, but he does lay out the facts for them to let them know what they're really asking for. How many times do we not fully realize what we're asking for? We might say, Lord, I really want this job at work. I really want it. But you know, a lot of times the reason we really want it is that we don't examine our hearts is because of something we selfishly want. I really want this car. I really want this house. I really want this promotion. I really want this, this whatever it is, fill in the blank. And I find this happens too often in life. When those desires come, what I would encourage you to do that the Bible lays out is go and seek advice. Make sure that when you get those thoughts and you want to say, well, I should just take the job and get more money, that shouldn't be the only answer to the question. Hey, does this work well with my family situation? How will this affect me spiritually? There's a lot bigger questions. I've heard lots of people that have moved to areas where there's no evangelical church, but the job was great. Well, guess what? It's a loss then. Unless you're going to go plant a church there, I guess. And I find this often as an elder, that people come to me and they want me to affirm a decision they've already made, not seek my advice to help them in the process. Did you catch that? Do we look to affirm our decisions or do we want advice as we make our decisions? It's one of the things God put elders in our life for when it comes to that spiritual part of things. But many of us do that as a whole. I just want somebody else to endorse what I'm already wanting to do anyways because I want to do it. Boy, I remember as a kid many, many times. I've done it as an adult as well, but it gets exaggerated when you're a kid. When I would try to think of ways that I could present this idea to my parents that they would give me money for it, but I had to make it sound like it was really about them and not about me. Mom, now, if you'll take me to this place first before you go there, you know you won't have to drive that way that way, and if you give me money, you wouldn't even have to make me lunch. I could just buy McDonald's. See, it's a win-win, Mom. And you can manipulate things any way you want to when you really want your way about stuff. And sadly, I think many of us would say this, I've gone to God trying to do the same thing. Well, God, but if you do this, as if God is some genie in the lamp, as if God is naive to my true heart intentions about things. And when James and John came, and then Jesus' response to them was, you don't really know what you're asking about. Are you really willing to drink from the cup that I'm going to have to drink from? They didn't get... <laughs> that Jesus was going to die on the cross. By the way, if you want to look later in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, you're going to see that James was probably the first disciple that was martyred for Jesus by one of the Roman officials who got so excited about it and the people's response to the murder of James that they wanted to kill some other disciples. And John, historically we're told through the word Josephus, who was a historian at the time, says that John was boiled in oil and it didn't affect him at all, a miraculous situation. It's not biblical, but historical. But we do know from Revelation chapter number 1 and verse number 9 that John was on the exile to the island of Patmos because of his faith, a, a, a desolate island that he was put on. And we know that God used that time that he was there for him to write the book of Revelation. These men did suffer part of that cup. But they didn't suffer it the way Jesus did because the thing we always want to remember with Jesus is not only did he suffer a horrific earthly death, but he took the sins of all mankind on him. The sins of all mankind on him. He did it out of love. 
James and John were confronted, but they didn't come to Christ with teachable hearts seeking advice. They just wanted that affirmation. Yeah, we can do it, Jesus. Just give it to us. Just give us what we want, Jesus. Again, me, 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 me. I, 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 I. And again, before we attack James and John, please look at your own hearts and look at the things that you decide to do. Even as you look at Monday and Tuesday and this past week, what has your life been about? Selflessness or selfishness? So then we see that Jesus gives the definition of service that's revealed in verse 41. He reveals what this really service is all about. Why? Well, it's motivated if you see, first of all, in verse 41. <clears throat> um, in chat, yeah, verse 40, 41, there, sit on my right hand. That's, the, that's given by God, not by me. It's not my choice who sits there. God prepares people. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, before you think they're getting indignant because they think James and John are asking wrongly, Let's flip back a few pages to chapter 9 and look at verse 33 and 34. You can do that later if you want. You're going to see that they were asking for the same things. So they weren't all upset and angry because James and John were heathen pagans and they were godly examples. They were like, they cut in line because we want that. How dare they get in front of us and what the things that we were going to ask for? I remember when my kids were little. And, and as a dad, trying to teach them about biblical things, I remember in particular, just trying to get them to understand, this was, a, this was before the what would Jesus do bracelets and all that, but we tried to say what would Jesus do in different scenarios. And uh, I, what I tried to tell them was, hey, how can we act like Jesus? How can we do the things Jesus wants us to do? And my son, Andrew, and Caleb had fought over something, which was a common occurrence, and I remember going to them and saying, hey guys, like now what would Jesus, you know, how would Jesus act in this situation? And I laid out and we talked about it. And, and I, I'll never forget out of the blue, I took, I took a moment, let them process it, see what their response is, you know. Okay, now do you get what Jesus would do in this? And they're like nodding their little heads, yes. And I remember my son Caleb turning to my son Andrew and going, you be Jesus. <laughs> Boy, isn't that so true in our lives? We want somebody else to be Jesus to us. We want them to show us grace. We want them to show us forgiveness. We want them to show us generosity. We want them to show us all the wonderful qualities. But hey, I want you to be Jesus because I want to be selfish John. I want my way. I want my stuff. I want my things. I want to make sure you acknowledge my purpose in life, not yours. Now, we aren't as crafts as that, but we live lives oftentimes so the other ten get riled up, not because they're righteous, but because they felt like they got cut out of a spot that they wanted. So then Jesus in 42 says this, and Jesus called it to him, them to him, he said this to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave. Jesus took the whole culture and upended it. He goes, you know what? Yeah, pagan rulers, guys in authority, yeah, they go around all the time. They're touting their power. 
You know how the Roman government collects their taxes. They kick your door down, and depending on how much the tax collector wants over and above the taxes, that's how much he takes from you. And he'll take it in property. He'll do abuse in order to get it. But that's the way. They were used to people manipulating, crushing, hurting, and destroying so they could get their own way and be number one, all done by the might and power of military actions. But Jesus came to save mankind, and as a lamb, he went to the slaughter, Isaiah says. And Jesus says to them very directly and says it in two different ways. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave. Whoa. They knew all about slaves. They were the guys that did whatever you asked them to do, told them to do, because they were property. I'm asking you, instead of worrying about how great you can be, the greatest you're going to find are the ones that learn the beauty of humility. The beauty of serving. The beauty of waiting. And boy, do we get bent out of shape about that stuff. We get bent out of shape about serving in many forms. As a church, we ask everybody that's a member to serve one Sunday a month. And for some of us, you joyfully accept and go over and above. And others, that 12 times a year really is a rock in your shoe. <laughs> for some of us to serve our spouses, we want to be served. We want them. We, in fact, we married them to complete us and to wait on us. And that's not what marriage is all about. The Bible certainly doesn't teach that. But we won't serve them. We won't serve our children. Children, we won't serve our parents. Employers, we don't serve our employees. And employees, we don't serve our employers. We're always looking for other people to meet our needs. And we fail to recognize that the scriptures are all about the exact opposite of that. I was a youth pastor for a lot of years. And anytime you ask teenagers to pick up, I'm sure our teenagers at UPCC are not like this. This was back in my old days. But it would be amazing how many teenagers, when I would ask them to pick up a piece of trash on the floor, it was incredible for me to see the acting that could take place. I would simply say, hey, Bob, would you go pick up that piece of paper? First of all, I'd get the, why me? As if they'd been persecuted. Well, because it's on the floor and it needs to get picked up. Oh, and the time they drugged themselves, pouted themselves, threw their arms up, rolled their eyes, they spent a whole lot more energy than if they just would have walked over and picked it up and thrown it away. But then I remember a friend of mine one time when I was complaining because when my wife, um, she doesn't do, really do this as much as she used to, but when we were earlier in our marriage, she, whenever she was in the kitchen, she'd like to open every cupboard that was there and leave them open. And I have OCD tendencies. And so she'd go in there and I'm like, why is it so hard, honey? Just shut it when you're done. It's not hard. And my wife would be like, you're not working in here, so don't worry about it. <laughs> and I remember one time my wife was in the other room and all these cupboards and I turned to my friend and I said, man, look at all the cupboards. My wife does this all the time. And he goes, I want you to do something for me and don't ask any questions. Okay. He goes, I want you to shut all the cupboards. I said, fine. He goes, no, wait. And he said, okay, now. And I shut the cupboards, and he goes, yeah, eight seconds. I said, eight seconds? He goes, it took you eight seconds to do that. Are you really gonna willing to have an attitude towards your wife over eight seconds? Yeah, that's one of those, oh, stab in the, in the chest, right? A simple way to serve my wife. Eight seconds worth, and I treated it like it was a horrific task to be done. Folks, we get service all mixed up, and we're so much into other people serving us of us serving them. 
I remember a story that I heard a long time ago about a gentleman named Randy and Mel. And in the old days, early 1900s, like 1800s, when people had different illnesses, they ended up in different wards of, of hospitals a lot more often. And this happened to be in Chicago, Illinois. And Randy and Mel had a disease, and I forget the name of it. I wrote it down, and I lost the piece of paper. But it was it, where the fluid fills in the lungs. And, um, and so they were put in a room together, and they kind of got to be friends. And there was a window. Randy had a window. Mel didn't. And um, Randy, they were kind of higher up, and so Mel could look down, and, and Randy couldn't. And, and, and what would happen at night sometimes, the fluid would build up, and one would start to cough and wouldn't have the energy as the disease wore on them to be able to get the fluid out. So they would always try to help each other. When one heard that the other one was having a hard time, he'd call the nurse in. They'd get him set up and cough his back and get the fluid moving in there and get it out of his lungs. And they really saved each other's lives many, many times. But because of the fluid buildup and the ongoing deterioration of their health, they really couldn't do a whole lot. So Randy, who had the window, would oftentimes, and when he had some strength, would pull himself up to the windowsill, and he started to tell Mel a story about this park that happened to be down below. And he told Randy, as the time went on, he got to tell them, this was for a couple of years, how a couple that he saw meet down there, and how eventually he got to see that they got engaged, and, and then he saw later that they were married, and he saw somebody buy a new puppy, and how the puppy was growing, and they were teaching the puppy, and, and he talked about the, you know, the activities in the park and different festivals that were taking place. And Mel would love the stories, but it turned from loving the stories to being envious of Randy having the window because he didn't get to see what Randy saw. And again, not a lot of strength. It wasn't as if he could go over to the door, or excuse me, to the window and look out. Had to get help to do anything. And finally, one time, as that envy continued to grow, one night Randy started to choke and Mel's envy became so great that he didn't call for the nurses. And his friend literally drowned in his own fluids. And they came in the next morning. They found him dead, and they took his body out. And the first thing, before they even had him in the room, is Mel said, I want to be in that bed. I want to be over there. I want to be in that bed. Get, get me over to that bed, please. I, I, I need to get over that bed I, 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 as soon as you can. Well, they had other things to do, but eventually anxious Mel finally got over there and he got him settled in and they said, you good? Yeah, I'm good. You can go now. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm good. You can go now. And as soon as Mel had mustered up enough strength after he'd gotten moved over, he grabbed a hold of that windowsill and he pulled himself to look at that beautiful park that he'd heard so much about. And he was met with a brick wall. See, his friend Randy had made up a whole story that their time could go by quicker for a park that never existed except in his imagination. He chose to serve his friend in his agony. And his friend allowed envy and bitterness to grow in his heart rather than to see the sacrifice and enjoy the beauty of the story that his friend told. Folks, we live in a culture that's all about serving self. We see it in politics, we see it in communities, and we see it in churches and families. And that's why when Jesus gets done telling them what servanthood is all about, he doesn't end it there, but he ends with verse 45, which we are going to be focusing on this year in many different ways. And the Bible says this, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. But not just to serve. He didn't come just to wash feet. He didn't come just to make meals out of bread and, and loaves and fishes. He didn't come to just heal the lame, raise the dead. What did he ultimately come for? And to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Now, that word ransom can be taken in two different ways. The word ransom can mean as a payment for the freedom of a slave or servant. So if you were to come and you wanted to free a slave or a servant, if you gave the amount of money that would cost to that master to free them, you paid that, and that ransom was and they were freed. And another way you could do that is to go to that master and go, I'm going to take his place and I'll become a slave in his spot so that he can be free. That's the word that Jesus used. Because, folks, he did both. He paid a cost that you could never pay by dying on the cross. And he took your place where you should have been the one that paid, and he took your place on the cross and the punishment that came along with it because of your sin, because of my sin. And that was the ultimate of serving. Now, Jesus served in all the other ways I mentioned. And even Jesus loving us so much when he died on the cross, he and our Father God left the Holy Spirit in us so that we have God in us if we have a relationship with Christ who's guiding us and working in us day by day by day and prompting us to remember that we're here to serve and not to be served. Folks, as we look at 2019 as a church but also as individuals, I just want to give you a few last things to think about on how we can live this stuff out. The first thing that I want you to look at is let the word lead you and not your emotions. You are going to feel like you need to be served. You're going to feel like other people should do what you want them to do. But I'm telling you, we have to be people led by the word of God, not by our feelings or our emotions. That will be your biggest thing to be selfish, is when you do what you think other people should do, for you, or excuse me, when you do what you think other people expect you to do, or you do things that you just want other people to serve you, you can be led so easily by those feelings and emotions and not by the word. Number two is choose to live for others, not for self. Every day that's a choice you make, folks. Now, I want to ask you to really look at your lives, though, because I don't think we realize how subtly we've allowed selfishness to creep into everything we do. Well, my wife always does that, but does she have to? But my parents always do that. But my boss always do that. My employee always do that. Pastor John always does that. He does. Okay, and maybe they should, but can you at least stop and go, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to interact in this situation? Choose to live for others, not to self. And that is a daily decision, oftentimes multiple times in a day that we have to make. And last, I just want you to cherish the gift that we have in Christ. Do you cherish your salvation? And folks, if we are his children, then to cherish the gift of humbly serving others. Don't buy into the world's mentality that you should be served. How dare they ask you to do those certain things? How dare God ask you to do those certain things? Shove that out of your head and cherish the fact that God's given you the gift of serving others. I remember quite a year, a few years back when I was a pastor in Sellersville, <clears throat> I went to, one of my responsibilities was I'd go to some of the shut-ins and do communion with them and pray with them. And I always went there expecting that I was going to be blessing them and I always left there realizing how much they blessed me. But I remember one lady in particular, her name was Evelyn, she was 92 years old, she couldn't get around much. She was at Souderton Mennonite Home, I believe. And I remember sitting with her and she looked at me and she said, Pastor John, she got teary-eyed, 
I just want God to take me home because I can't do anything to serve anymore. I can't do anything to serve others anymore. And I said, Evelyn, can you pray? I can. I said, Evelyn, you don't have any idea what a gift a prayer warrior who can spend hours praying for the saints of God and the salvation of the lost and the needs that are out there. What a privilege it is for me to know that someone like you is faithfully praying and serving in that way. She got a smile on her face and she goes, I guess maybe that's what God wants me to still do. She lived for another, I think, year or two. And man, every time I bumped into her, Pastor John, I, I prayed for you today. Folks, I don't know what it is that God wants you to do, but I'm telling you this. Cherish the gift of salvation, but cherish the humility that can come with serving others rather than having your own agenda be shoved to the forefront. But I'm telling you, I'll say it one last time, you are not going to realize until you ask God to point it out how subtly your selfishness and self-focusedness has evade, invaded every aspect of your life. So ask him to reveal it in every area of your life. And then let him change you to become more like him. I'm telling you, there's a joy in serving Jesus. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the many ways that we are selfish, God. We can be demanding on things church-wise, the music we have, the programs we run, the coffee we drink, Lord. We can be selfish on parking spots and driving lanes and the way our neighbor keeps their yard and the way somebody else takes too long in a, in a shopping lane, Lord. We can be selfish in the way we expect to be served by our spouses and our neighbors and our families and our bosses and our employees. And Lord, just forgive us for how selfishness has creeped into so many aspects of our life. And help us as a church, <clears throat> Lord, to continue to look for ways this year we can encourage our body to be selfless. But Lord, above all, let your spirit prompt in each and every heart here that is a child of yours, that they might today become less selfish and more selfless, God. We want to be like you, Father. So please help us to humbly submit to what that looks like. In your precious name, amen.